welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Well, we are um, partway through a series which is looking at the book of Ephesians, or more correctly, uh, probably a letter called Ephesians, written by a man called Paul nearly some 2,000 years ago. And uh, the, the series title, if you like, is called Saints Among Sinners. And uh, I would really strongly encourage you, we're up to part five today, but I would strongly encourage you to go to iTunes or to our website and to download those messages that have gone before. I think it'll really help you to get a good grasp on this little book called Ephesians. Today for part five, I want to um, share a message that I've entitled Maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ. And as we read, I'm just going to highlight three things that I believe Paul was longing to see in the church, and I guess more specifically, in the lives of individual Christians that make up the church. But I'm going to start by just reading the whole chapter of Ephesians, uh, of Ephesians chapter 3. So Paul starts off in verse 1, he says, For this reason, and the reason being all the things that he shared before, the things that you need to go and have a listen to if you haven't already done so, or read. Okay, so all the promises, all the blessings, all the, the spiritual blessings that have gone before, for that reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of your, you Gentiles, and we looked at that last week, Paul had suffered greatly for his stance that God loved all people and was, wanted the gospel to get out and touch all people. And the Jews didn't like that message, and they persecuted him strongly for that. And in fact, when he was writing this letter, he was writing it from jail. Because, and then, then he interrupts himself. He goes, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Um, so he was going to start praying for them, but he kind of interrupts himself, as he's prone to do quite regularly if you read any of Paul's letters. He says, That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the, the gen- sorry, the, is, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And so I don't need to really look at that because that's what we looked at again last week. But Paul is so excited about that message that he kind of just keeps interrupting himself and coming back to it. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am least, less than the least of all God's people, he was very aware of his past. For those of you that have read the book of Acts, you would understand that Paul... Um, before he became a Christian, was actually very anti-Christian. In fact, he was persecuting the church um, to the point of death. Okay, so he was very aware of where he'd come from. So he considered himself the least, or less than the least. Uh, although I am the least, or less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that certainly was Paul's burden. It was his call. It was his passion. Was to preach to the Gentiles, those that weren't Jews, and to go even into places where people had not been before with the gospel. That was kind of God's, um, what God was doing, uh, uh, God's gift to the church was Paul to the Gentiles. Verse 9, he says, And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
according to his heavenly, sorry, to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he's saying there is basically if Satan had known what was really going on in terms of God's mysterious plan, his wisdom, that was ultimately Christ crucified and then the church on top of that, if the devil had known what God was up to, he would never have persecuted Jesus the way he did. He would have just let him just live a nice, quiet, peaceful little life somewhere, just let him grow old and die if that's possible. But he didn't get it. He, 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 was hate, he hated what Jesus stood for and ultimately he put, had him put to death, which is exactly what God knew would happen, exactly what God wanted to happen. Um, and so through that act, the church was birthed. And now the very existence of the church is a constant reminder to Satan and all of the demonic and, and evil powers that are in the unseen realm about this world that God, and a revelation, not just a reminder, but a revelation of God's wisdom and power as the church continues to grow, it continues to be influential, and it continues despite to do those things despite the serious opposition throughout history. You think about what the church has endured throughout history, and all of that is just like you can't keep a good man down. And the church, she might look a bit punch, jump, uh, punch drunk at times, but it just keeps getting up and it just keeps moving forward despite all that the devil has brought against the church over the centuries. Massive persecution, trying to eradicate the faith, but unable to. And it's just a message to the devil that his days are numbered. Verse 12, it says, In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. And then in verse 14, he stops interrupting himself and he gets back to his initial thing that he started. He starts again. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how high, sorry, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so that's just a brief skim over that particular passage. But I want to just pick up on three particular traits of spiritual maturity. I'm not going to talk about some of the things or reiterate the things that we spoke about last week. The first thing I want to talk about is the first trait that Paul longed to see in the church was simply confidence in approaching God. Simply confidence in approaching God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12 in the NIV says, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The New Living Translation says, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come fearlessly into God's presence, assured of his glad welcome. And so this idea of boldness, in, in the classical Greek, it had this sense of being able to speak freely. <clears throat> okay, So not, not having to hold your tongue, but to be able to talk about what's going on and speak your mind and so on and so forth. You didn't need to be fearful. It wasn't a rudeness, we're not talking about a rudeness or a cockiness here, but a confidence that stems because of an assurance of God's 
Firstly, his warm welcome, the fact he's glad to see us, as any father is for his kids, and because of his guarantee of favour towards his children. All the things that, that Paul spelt, um, spent his time in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2 sort of laying down as foundations, doctrinal foundations. Because of those things, we can all come confidently into God's presence. This confidence isn't birthed in self-importance or ignorance or arrogance. You know, some people, oh, you know, God is my mate, you know, and, you know, oh, or, if, or if maybe if, they, maybe if they're not, you know, don't call God their mate, maybe it's like, when I get to heaven, am I going to tell God a thing or two? This is like total ignorance. That's not confidence before God. That is the height of stupidity. Yeah. I, mean, I remember when I was at school once, um, it was about year nine or so, and I had words to this, this guy um, because of something he'd done. And I didn't realise who it was, but other people did. And so this guy was about 24 years old, but he was at school with us. <laughs> and the reason he was 24 and at school, you could probably work out. Anyway, he wasn't the most savoury individual. And so what sort of started off as a bit of an altercation suddenly escalated to the point where I'm in my class doing my thing, and next minute, the vice principal comes in. He goes, Peter Rainbow, can you come with me? And then we went and got Tony. And he goes, we need to get you out of here. And so the long and short is they got another, I had a, a speedy ride home just to get me out of the, the, the general zone because this guy was a psycho. This, <laughs> this same guy, he chased a tech studies teacher once from one end of the school to the other with a massive lump of wood. He ran through a glass door to try and catch him. <laughs> so... You know, my, my boldness wasn't boldness, it was just stupidity based on ignorance. And some people's boldness when it comes to the things of God, some people's, you know, um, fist shaking and finger pointing and all that sort of thing, about it's just based on ignorance. It's not true boldness, but God is calling us to true boldness. He's calling us to live and to believe, or live in and to believe the things that Paul has spoken about, as I mentioned in 1 and 2. The things about the fact that we have been totally forgiven. The things that we have been called into, sonship, the fact that we are God's kids, and the, the things that I won't need to go over now, but these are the things that Paul is saying, if you've got a grip on these things, you can walk boldly into God's presence. The way my kids walk boldly into me and say, Dad, can I have? No, no, no shame there, no shyness there. Sadly, many Christians live short of that confidence. You know, they sort of skulk around the periphery of God's throne room, if you want to call it that. You know, they're just, they're just not comfortable in his presence, not sure that he really likes them, not sure that he's really accepted them, not sure that he really gets who they are and where they've come from and knows all their dirty washing. But the fact is he does, but they don't understand it. You know, when we were younger, we had a dog called Sam. And that's not who I named my son after, okay? Sam out of the Bible, all right? But we had this dog called Sam, and he was a kind of cute little thing to a point. But we didn't get him from a puppy. We got him probably when he was six months or a year old. And we worked out pretty quickly he'd been abused as a puppy. And, um, you know, you might just be doing something, and you have a newspaper, and suddenly the dog would just go, it was like he would freak out at the sight of a newspaper. So we kind of worked out pretty quickly that probably the place where he'd been before would get a rolled-up newspaper and beat this dog silly. And so as great as this dog was, in many ways, he all, there, was, there was always a distance between us. He didn't really entrust himself to our family apart from Tone, loved Tone, hated Baz, would bite Baz you know, more you know, willingly than he'd eat his dinner. Um, I was kind of, love mum 
and dad probably, um, myself, I was, I'm not really keen on dogs that much, so, you know, we kind of had this love-hate relationship, but uh, <laughs> allergies, that's all, all right. <laughs> but, you know, he just, he just wouldn't entrust himself to us as a family. And so many people, when it comes to their Christianity, they're like that with God. They don't entrust themselves to the goodness of God. They live with a cringe. They live sort of shying away from God's presence, not really allowing themselves to get too close, not really allowing God to know really what they're thinking, although God already does. But you know, in our thinking, we, we think we can keep God out. Not really ever willing to have boldness and to come just asking, expecting that God wants to give us good things, but reacting out of our past and thinking, how could God possibly? I don't deserve it, etc., etc. That's where people are living for the most part, people that I talk to anyway. But by contrast, God is calling us to live confidently and boldly. And when I was thinking about that, straight away my mind goes to Jacob. Jacob in chapter 11, sorry, 32, I think it is in verse 26, you know, Jacob was just an audacious young guy. And one day it talks about the fact that he actually, you know, he was, he was, a, he was a promise carrier. You know, God was going to work through this man to bless the nations of the world ultimately. And he was the father of, of the nation Israel. But before that had happened, this unusual encounter happens where he, where he finds himself in the middle of the night wrestling with God. He doesn't realize it's God at the time. But he's wrestling with this person and it gets to daybreak and, and, and this being says, let me go, I've got to go. And Jacob continues to cling on. He says, I will not let go until you bless me. I will not let go until you bless me. And ultimately, God touches him. He ultimately does bless him. But he, he has a revelation after the fact that I have seen face, God face to face and lived. And he's just blown away by the fact God didn't kill him. God wanted to bless him. But there's a tenacity or, or a holy audaciousness, if you like, that I believe God wants to see more of, not less of. It's not presumption, but it's faith that honours God by simply taking him at his word. Just living in the truth of the, the, the things that we have looked at already in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2 should enable us to boldly go before God as kids. Like I said, my children have no problem asking me for all sorts of things. And then when I say no, they keep asking. And they keep asking, and they keep asking, and they keep asking, and they keep asking, and particularly Michaela, she just does not shut up. She is so convinced that I am good. She is so convinced that I love her. She is so convinced that I bless her. She, she knows that she'll get her way ultimately, or she thinks she will. That's what God wants us to be like, I'm sure. As we understand who God is and we know his will, I don't think there's anything that's too much for us to ask of God. Because if you really know those things, you're not caught up in, in, in your own selfishness, but you're caught up in the purposes of God. If we can approach God with confidence, maybe we could approach people with more confidence as well. And if we think about you know, the greats that have gone before us, people that have made a significant mark in history, Paul himself being one of those, Peter and John and the other apostles, maybe people like you know, Martin Luther or John Wesley or... You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or other people who have stood up, it's because they've been confident before God. They've known that if God is for me, who can be against me? And ultimately, those people go on and make a difference in the world they live. And they're significant examples, but you and I also, within our sphere of influence, can make a significant difference for those that are around about us. If we'll be confident before God and confident before others. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32 says, The people who know their God shall be strong. 
and carry out great exploits. So we need to be confident and strong in God in order that we can do the great things that he's calling us to do. That's the first thing that Paul wants. If only the church, he's praying, God, help them to understand it. Help them be able to come boldly. The second trait that I want to look at is being constant, regardless of our circumstances. You know, often people wish that they were physically stronger, perhaps that they were a bit more intellectually alert, maybe they feel, wish that they were better resourced, and all of those sorts of things. But if you notice that success in life actually doesn't generally boil down to those things. In fact, I remember hearing something recently, they were talking about tennis players. And they said, actually, the tennis players that showed the most promise as teenagers often aren't the ones that make it to the top as adults. You know, they're gifted, they're fit, they're healthy, they've got all the coordination going on as young people, but something is missing that stops them being able to take it into that next level. Those who succeed, whether it be in the sporting arena, whether it be in the, the business area, whether it even be in relationships, are those that have the inner strength to keep going when others either give up or lose focus and begin to get drifted, uh, drift into other things. And Paul knew that. And so I'm sure he prayed for people you know, and their outward circumstances, as we've just done for people that are, that are battling with, with sickness. And those. It's good to pray that people's circumstances will change, all for that. And God obviously honours that through healing and so on and so forth. But Paul also realised that what goes on inside a person is far more important than what's happening to them externally. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. If I go back to the name I mentioned before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago, but he was an amazing man in that he lived in Nazi Germany um, he had every opportunity to, to go to America. They wanted him to come there and teach the Bible there. and all that stuff. But he decided to stay in, a, in the country that he loved for the sake of the truth and for the sake of the people in that country. And so he opposed Hitler when he, everyone was either bowing down to Hitler, even much of the church was, was, was taking on board what he said because it suited them. Others were, were leaving the country. Others were just being quiet and trying to keep a low profile. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was consistent and constant in terms of his speaking out against what was going on in his country. And the only reason he was able to do that was not because he was built like Arnold Schwarzenegger and bulletproof or anything like that. It was because of what was going on inside. The inner strength. And the world today needs more Christians like that. More people who have that sort of tenacity, that sort of spine, that sort of fortitude, that they will stand for what is right irrespective of what's going on around about them. That they will keep their course, as, as we heard from Hannah, just keep their course, knowing what God's will, and keep that course, irrespective of what the circumstances might be screaming out to us at any given moment. We need people who are constant. Not constant pains in the neck. Not constant whinges. Not people that are constantly changing their mind and flipping that way and flopping that way and being blown here and being blown there, but people who are constant, people who, who know what they're called to, who know who they are, who know what God's plan and purpose is for their life, and are just consistent in living that out on a daily basis. People that we can rely on, people that are dependable, constant in faith, constant in hope, constant in love, constantly 
seeking to know God's will and then to do it. Regardless, like I said, of circumstances or persecution or opposition or misunderstanding or rumors or backbiting and all the sort of stuff that goes on when you take a stand for God. People that are constantly dependable, they're not hot or cold. They're not saying one thing and looking all the goods one minute and then next minute it's all like, it's like God doesn't even exist. And then next minute they're on again and next minute they're off again. But just constant. When we feel like giving up, when people around us don't understand how we can keep going. Paul is saying, no, through his spirit in your innermost being, you can, res- you can draw on the limitless resources of heaven to find strength to stand for another day, to find grace to respond in a godly manner another time, and so on and so forth. It all comes down to his presence dwelling in us. What's happening on the inside of us is far more in- um, important than what's going on the outside of us. Circumstances will come and go. You'll have good times and you'll have bad times. That's just life. But what is God doing inside you? How much room have you given him? It's even odd that Paul, and again, you know, it's one of those theological debates that people like to do. You know, Do all Christians have the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, they do, but how much do they have? And are they baptized? It's to miss the point, seriously. You know, If the Holy Spirit is in us, how much of you does he have? Let's just go there. How much of your life is given over? Is there like a little place where you give him rule and reign in your life? But then there's all the other stuff that he has no, no say in or no part of. God wants us to be full with our innermost being, with God's presence. He wants us to have no closets that are locked closed. He just wants to move freely in and through our lives in order that we can represent him well, in order that we can draw all that we need from his presence because we have all that we need already. The Bible tells us for life and for godliness. Not just for life and getting by, but for godliness. To do it like Jesus did it. If we lay hold of the things that Paul's already spoken about. My third trait that I want to look at quickly is about being complete through God's love. Complete through God's love. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now that's a bit of an unusual sentence, isn't it? To know this love that surpasses knowledge. What what does that mean? That's like an oxymoron. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, we do it all the time. You think about water. There are lots of facts that you can know about water. But to drink water is something totally different. It surpasses just the knowledge. You know, when I ride with my mates up Norton Summit or wherever, Mount Lofty, or whatever on a hot day, you know, when we get to the top of the hill, we don't all pull out our iPhones and do a search on wet, cold, refreshing. (laughs) What we do is we reach for our water bottles and you start drinking. In other words, there's stuff you can know, but it's not the same as experiencing. And so God wants us to experience his love. The knowledge that Paul is talking about is here is an experiential love of God. It's a revelational love of God. And there's a whole bunch of things that you can do to increase your chances of having a revelation of God's love. You know, Hannah again mentioned about praying, reading the Bible, these things which almost become cliches in our Christian faith. But you, know, you think about any relationship you have, how far is it going to go if you don't spend time together experiencing one another? 
Same's true in marriage. You know, we don't get married to accumulate facts about each other. If I wanted to know more facts, I'm sure I could just ask a mum or dad, and that would be it. it was just, life was just about getting to know facts about other people, but it's not. It's about experiencing one another. It's about getting to one another. It's about being revealed. It's about growing in a depth of understanding. It's about you know, knowing a person so well that you can, you can preempt what they're going to say. You can know what they think and what they like. There's obviously the, the, the beauty of the physical intimacy of a relationship. All of these things are experiential. And you can't just define them. The definition is nothing compared to the experience in any of those areas. And likewise, when it comes to knowing the love of God, it was never intended just to be an intellectual thing or a theological pursuit. And again, some of us are just bent in such a way that we, you know, we love to gain knowledge about things of God. But we're not living in the revelation of those things. We're not living in the experience of those things. Paul's desire, his prayer, was that people would know God's love through revelation and experience because ultimately that is what is life-changing. It's one thing to do a Bible study on all the different you know, Greek words for love or whatever and you know, know how many times it says love in the Bible. That, that is helpful at one level. But it's not the same as just experiencing the God's, God's love. It's not the same as, as feeling like you're at your wit's end, feeling like you're a dirty, dirty rotten whatever, that you've got no future, and to then fall back on the knowledge, oh, but, but I know God loves me, so I'm going to praise him anyway. And as we begin to just lift our eyes towards heaven, and we begin to feel his divine arms enfold us and, and hug us, this, that's experiencing love. It, 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 does, it starts with knowledge. You know, it's like water. I mentioned about getting to the top of the hill. You know, it's because I know it's wet. It's because I know it's cold. It's because I know it's refreshing that I actually go for the water bottle and drink it. And so it's good to know that God is gracious. It's good to know that he's kind. It's good to know he's compassionate. It's good to know he's loving. It's good to know he's forgiving. But we need to go to the next step. We need to put ourselves in the spray zone to get there and experience these things for ourselves. Okay? Knowing something of the width or the broadness of God's love that embraces all of humanity, irrespective of social standing, colour, creed, sin, helps us and should inspire us to do likewise. If we know the broadness of God's love, what excuse do I have if I'm called to become more like him? Because we're talking about becoming complete in him. I'm, just, I'm, I'm compelled to do likewise. I'm compelled to put my preferences aside. I'm compelled, I have to challenge myself if I come across someone I don't like or if I find myself getting a bad attitude towards a certain person or people group or whatever. I'm compelled to come back to the love of God and I'm compelled to think, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would he respond? And it challenges and changes me. Knowing about the length of God's love enables me to go the distance because God's love is from eternity past to eternity future, it's always there for us. He's not going to give up on us. And so when it comes to doing life with those around about me, why should we give up? If we've got God's example, we can press on and we can be long-suffering and patient and go the distance in our relationships. Knowing the height of God's love, to me, that's just talking about the purity. The unadulterated and infinitely generous and good nature of God's love. I was just thinking this morning as I was walking again, just about the generosity of creation. You know, just, just the breathtaking scenery that God has provided for us to enjoy. 
You know, many of the technological advances today that are happening, be they in, in um, engineering or be they in medicine, a lot of it is not new. A lot of it is, is refining or discovering what God has already placed there. You know, the, 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 the things, the properties that are required for the healing of so many of our diseases today, they're already there. God has placed them in the plants and in the rocks and so on and so forth. And we're discovering God's goodness. Was it, I um, can't remember the guy's name now, but he spoke about you know, thinking God's thoughts after him. And that's ultimately what we're doing. We're recognizing in hindsight that God is good if we are open to revelation. Many of the great technological advances today when it comes to engineering, we're actually, we're actually copying. It's crazy. On one hand, we're saying these things just happen by accident, and yet we are copying them because we recognize the wisdom of design in so many of, of, of the creatures that God has created. That's another whole topic in itself. But you know, God's love is vast. He is totally and utterly generous. He has lavished himself upon us. And where we don't feel that at times, it's only because sin has got in and messed things up. It's not because God's intention was to ruin our lives. God's intention, if we look at creation, was to create a home for those he loved. And he's put every good thing there for us. If we know the depth of God's love, it challenges us to move beyond relationships that are superficial, that are shallow, that are without sacrifice. Okay, so Paul is calling us to know the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of his love. And the reason he does that because ultimately he talks about or he indicates that the measure of our understanding of that love is going to be proportional, or sorry, that the um, proportion of our ability to live in his fullness is directly connected to how much we understand his love. Yeah. Verse 19, it says, To know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled. In other words, something is dependent upon something else. Thank you. In other words, if we don't understand his love, if we don't get it, if we are feeling inferior and second class and shy and embarrassed and distant, we don't get God's love. And therefore, we can't contain or release or demonstrate the fullness of God in our lives. If you think less of God than he is, you'll follow him at a lower level. If you think less of God than he is, you'll have lower expectations. You know, some Christians think it's selfish to pray for the things for themselves. But Paul, but Paul reveals that God wants to bless us with every good thing. Things for our enjoyment in order that we might go and be a blessing to others. But it's all dependent upon our knowledge of his love. Yeah. If we think God is less loving than he is, we'll exercise less faith. We won't put it out there that God could heal me. We won't put it out there that God could help my marriage. We won't put it out there that God could help my business. We won't put it out there that God could affect our community because God's not loving. God doesn't really care. And if all those things are true, ultimately we will experience less of God and so it becomes a self-fulfilling downward spiral. On the other hand, the clearer our revelation of God, the more we understand God in his word, and then God by revelation and experience, the more we'll prioritize God. Yeah. I get a feeling that you know, even seeing 
Hannah's testimony, there's a, I don't think Hannah's less appreciative after that. And I don't think any of us are discouraged by that testimony. I think there's a sense in which, wow, God wants to break into our lives. God wants to be intimately involved in our lives. God wants to help us. And so what that should mean to us will be a greater level of priority of the things of God in our lives. The clearer our revelation, the fuller our experience of God, the more access we'll give him into our lives. We'll realize, I've had this closet full of skeletons that I've tried to hide from God, but if I realize that God is good, if I realize that God is loving, if I realize that God only has my best interests at heart, maybe, just maybe, I can give that area of my life to him. And maybe, just maybe, I can receive healing And maybe, just maybe, he'll move into my life in another realm. And we're a little bit fuller than we were before. Fuller with God rather than fuller with ourselves. The more we do that, the more transformation will take place in our lives. And ultimately, the more fully we'll represent him. Paul, Paul talks about being filled with the measure of the fullness of God. The more we press in to God, the more we know his word, the more we understand his love, the more we put ourselves out there to experience his love, ultimately, the more we become like him, the more fully we represent him. In conclusion, and then I just want to finish as Paul did. He said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us. What's that power? It's his love. It's his spirit working in us. It's the knowledge of his truth. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. My paraphrase on that little bit is, when his power is at work in us in the ways I've spoken about, anything is possible. Anything is possible. He's able to fix things that you cannot imagine him ever being able to fix. He's able to put things back together that are shattered beyond any shadow of recognition. He will do things that we cannot even comprehend or imagine him doing in our life and circumstances. Things that are written off as impossible, God can and wants to do. The catch is that he won't do it in a vacuum. He wants to do it with you and he wants to do it through you. It's according to his power at work in us that he wants to work. So don't give up on your marriages. Don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on your school. Even if you're the only Christian in the whole school, don't give up on it. You are God's person put there by his divine appointment to make a difference. Likewise, in your workplace. Likewise, ultimately, more broadly, into our community, into our society. When it comes to sickness, likewise, God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. Nobody is beyond repair. God can fix it even if we can't comprehend it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. God bless.